Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Um, the only good thing about being a Bible teacher these days is that for the next 20 minutes, I don't have to wear a mask. Uh, it's particularly lovely to have the McKillen family uh, with us this morning. And uh, as a church, we stand with Shirley as she mourns the death of her father. Daniel chapter 3 tells the story from ancient Babylon about a golden idol and a fiery furnace. So at first sight, it might seem culturally remote, but in fact, it is astonishingly modern. It explains so much about the world we live in today. We're going to divide the story up into three sections in verses 1 to 7. We'll see how the world gets us to conform. In verses 8 through 23, we'll learn why people become so enraged with Christians. And in verses 24 to 30, we'll see where we encounter real authority. So let's get underway by reading verses uh, 1 to 7 together. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, prefects, governors, councillors, treasurers, justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In the previous chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and the dream had been explained to him, um, had, had been explained that, to him why all earthly kingdoms rise and fall. He had dreamed of a great statue in human form. Its head was made of gold, its chest of silver, uh, its body of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet of iron and clay. It was a picture of decreasing value. And in the king's dream, a stone from heaven came crashing into the statue's feet and brought the whole thing down. The golden head represented King Nebuchadnezzar himself. But he had learned that no matter how well he governed, the civilization that he had built would eventually come crashing down. We need to apply that lesson uh, to our own society. Western culture is perhaps on its last legs. A magnificent civilization that dominated the world for 500 years could very soon come crashing down because empires always rise and fall. That's the lesson of history. Coldplay uh, wrote a song. You may have heard of Coldplay. They are the inspiration of every Christian anthem written in the past 10 years. But anyway, he wrote a song called Viva La Vida. I used to rule the world. Seas would rise when I gave the word. Now in the morning I sleep alone, sweep the streets I used to own. Now, Coldplay wrote that song about Christendom. But the great irony is that the words will come true for the West itself. Nebuchadnezzar refused to accept the insight given to him in his dream. He was determined to build, if you like, a third Reich, a kingdom that would last for a thousand years. And so he got his best craftsmen, many of them Jewish, 
to build a golden idol that stood on top of a huge plinth, probably a bit like Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square. And the only thing we are told about the idol is that it was covered in gold. Consider that design in the light of the king's dream. It clearly represented Nebuchadnezzar's own values, his self-understanding. Today, we might call it a representation of the king's identity. And the verses that follow shine a searchlight on our own culture. Nebuchadnezzar creates a program of ruthless social engineering. He uses a carrot and stick approach. All the cultural resources of his day, all the music and arts were designed to encourage society to bow down before the idol. And that long list of job titles is not remotely random. It's an ordered list. The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. We're watching every office of the state bowing down in obedience. So when the music played, the empire bowed. So cultural and political power led the way in the worship of the idol. And of course, in the background, there was the big stick. The fiery furnace was a threat to any non-conformist. Last month, the BBC website and other media outlets trumpeted uh, a period of time called Pride Month. In every school, university and workplace, in every public square in the land, the values of the LGBT movement were celebrated. The immense cultural power of the media was brought to bear to make this piece of social engineering a success. We were all encouraged to bow down before the great idol of our own culture, the thing called expressive individualism. It is the idol which tells us that we can be whatever we want to be. We aren't creatures who live according to a design plan. We are autonomous beings who can create our own identities. And when the music played, the entire political establishment bowed down. At the end of the month, our prime minister stood outside 10 Downing Street and recited the mantras of expressive individualism. And behind him, his residence was lit up with the rainbow colors of the LGBT flag. The music had played, and even the satraps bowed down. Nebuchadnezzar's idol of gold had been fashioned in a workshop. I'm sure some of the Jewish exiles were involved in its construction. In our world, the workshop where idols are built, that workshop's called the university. It is academia that builds the intellectual idols that dominate our cultural landscape. The ideologies of the progressive left were designed and crafted by neo-Marxist intellectuals in the second half of the 20th century. They didn't melt gold in a furnace or wield a hammer. They smoked Galois cigarettes while they discussed philosophy in the cafes of Paris. But make no mistake, they were building an idol. And today, we are all expected to bow down before it. Let's read verses 8 through 23 together. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? No. 
If you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pyre, lyre, trichon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. One of the striking features of this section is the rage exhibited by Nebuchadnezzar. He was normally a tolerant and a rational man, experienced in the ways of the world, but here he completely loses it. His anger and rage is white hot. He's overcome with this immense fury, which prompts him to give commands that lead innocent people to lose their lives. And I guess the obvious question is, why? What causes people to become enraged? Well, the text tells us. In verse 15, the king asks, his voice shaking with rage, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? These three young men who stood before him with calm dignity had revealed the hollowness of Nebuchadnezzar's idol. If you looked inside it, there was nothing to see. It had no power. All there was behind it was the power of Nebuchadnezzar's own hand. Strip away the music and the gold, and behind it you find a little man. Have you ever wondered why Christians make this culture so angry? When we refuse to affirm a sexualized identity, when we refuse to bow down before transgender theology, ideology, why does our action provoke such anger? It is the rage of a narcissist who has been found out. Tim Keller once brilliantly said that there are two key emotions that can help us discover the idols in our lives. When we feel rage or despair, we do so because the idols in our lives have been exposed and threatened. An Instagram influencer gives, gives into rage and despair if a photo of her looking less than perfect gets uploaded onto social media. A politician or a church leader who secretly idolizes their own power can become enraged when someone reveals them to be ordinary, weak human beings. A man whose whole identity is bound up in the idea of being really smart can become enraged if someone shows him up to have said something mildly stupid or ignorant. We become overcome with narcissistic rage when for a moment the veil is drawn back and the hollowness, the flimsiness of our chosen identity is revealed to be false. You see, outside, Nebuchadnezzar could hear the whole empire bowing down in worship of his values, his identity. But none of that mattered because these three insignificant young men had seen that the emperor had no clothes. And their insight caused the king to go into a meltdown. Let's just pause for a second 
and allow me to ask you a direct question. Can you think of moments in, in your life where you have succumbed to feelings of irrational anger or feelings of despair? If we can find the honesty and humility to analyze these moments, we will discover the idols in our own hearts. And then we get down on our knees and ask God to crush those idols. Remember, an idol can be a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. It might be your physical appearance, your wealth, your ethnicity, or your intelligence. It might be a job title, or even your image of yourself as a mother or a father. It could even be your reputation as someone who knows the scriptures well. Just think it through right now. What has made you really angry or caused you to despair? What was the element in your makeup that was threatened? If you discover that, you've discovered the idols in your heart. And this section uh, provides a brilliant contrast between anger and strength, between narcissistic rage and the ability to endure with quiet courage. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, well, they knew all about false identities. Their very names had been changed in an attempt to give them new identities. But they knew who they were, who they really were, and so unlike the king, there was no gap between the real man and the glitzy image. It is that humble authenticity that made them so strong. You see, if there is the slightest difference between the real person and their public image, then there can be no strength of character. All you have is rage. But these three men had genuine strength. They come across, don't they, as calm, dignified, and courteous. Yes, they were standing up against this juggernaut of political power, but they never used violence. They weren't suicide bombers or insurrectionists. They even accept Nebuchadnezzar's right to rule over them. They don't even bother to plead for mercy. You know, when we tell this story to children, we concentrate on the miraculous escape at the end. And so we sometimes give the impression that these young men never suffered. Well, think about the conversations that went on around Shadrach's breakfast table with his young wife. Maybe looking at little kids being fed, knowing that they'll have to grow up without a dad. And their love would have to carry on in a strange land with no welfare system. These three men had to weigh up their lives. Imagine a set of skills. On one side, they placed everything they had, wife, kids, career, homes, their very lives. And on the other, only God. I feel ashamed right now when I look at my own life in light of these three young men's faith. Their witness cuts to the heart, doesn't it? The story isn't really about a miraculous escape for those who trust God. Because, of course, down through the centuries, God's people have burned, been burned alive and have not been rescued this side of eternity. No supernatural hand shielded them from death. The speech these men make in verses 16 to 18 contain perhaps the most noble words in the whole of the Old Testament. Notice the personal nature of their relationship with God. They don't refer to the Lord as God. They call him the God we serve. I think their chins lifted a little when they used that phrase. Courteous, yes, but Nebuchadnezzar would have got the message. You aren't the source of authority in our lives. Yes, you have more political power than anyone else in the world, but we serve the living God. The speech also contains an important pastoral lesson. Elders and wise counselors down through the centuries have used this speech to explain the very heart of faith to people who are suffering. There are three levels of faith shown here. He is able to save us. He will save us. But even if he does not. 
Faith at its most basic level acknowledges that God has the capacity to save us. He has the power to save us. So we can trust in God's power. At a higher level, faith involves a trust that he will ultimately save us. His love for is so great that he will exercise his power in order to accomplish our salvation. The good shepherd will never abandon us. That's trust in his love. But the highest level of faith is found in that little phrase, even if he does not. This is the faith that trusts not in God's power or his love, but in his wisdom. It's the faith which believes that God is competent with your life. It is the faith that says, I do not understand what God is doing here, but I trust his competence and his wisdom. It is faith in a person, not an outcome. Maybe I'm talking to someone this morning who's standing before some great material power. And maybe you're staring into a fiery furnace that threatens to burn up everything you've worked for in your whole life. Perhaps physical sickness will rob you of all your dreams. Or dementia will start to steal away your own sense of who you are. Your memory is being burned away. Maybe a relationship has been destroyed. It is in these terrible moments that you can whisper to yourself, the God I serve is able to save me. In the ultimate sense, he will save me. But for now, even if he does not save me from this fiery trial, I will not bow down. All he needed persuaded me to publish some podcasts over the summer on church history. So I have spent the past fortnight living in the weird and wonderful world of the Middle Ages. But our first episode was on the history of the early church. And I came across a number of intensely moving stories about our brothers and sisters in Christ from centuries ago. And I want to tell you one of them. It's about a young woman called Perpetua. She lived around about the year 200 AD in the North African city of Carthage. It was a Roman province at the time. And Perpetua was 22 years old, recently married with an infant child. And she had just become a Christian. On the orders of the Romans, Perpetua was arrested. And after a period of imprisonment, she was taken to an amphitheater. And it was full of the local townspeople. Some had brought packed lunches. All were eagerly looking forward to the show. Perpetua, Perpetua and her young friend Felicity were brought into the amphitheater. A wild bull was released into the stadium. The crowd roared as it gored the girls, tossing them into the air. Perpetua was terribly injured, but with unbelievable dignity, she got to her feet, rearranged her disheveled hair, and went to her friend's assistance. A leopard was then released from a cage. It tore the girls' flesh until their white robes were soaked in blood. But the crowd grew impatient, so eventually the ringmaster gave the order for the girls to be stabbed to death by swordsmen. Now, while she was in the dungeon awaiting her death, Perpetua wrote a diary. In a moment of mercy, a guard allowed her to nurse her newborn infant and breastfeed him. At that moment, she wrote, the dungeon was like a palace to me. Her father had pleaded with her to recant her confession of faith in Christ. He was desperate for his daughter to live, but Perpetua pointed to a vase. My father, that is a vase. There is no other name for it. It is a vase. I am a Christian. There is no other name for it. Those were her last recorded words. I am a Christian. For Perpetua, there was no miraculous escape. As far as the world was concerned, that story ends with the corpse of a young mother bloodied and torn by savage animals. But that is not the end. One day, my brothers and sisters, we shall meet Perpetua and her child and her friend Felicity. And what shall we say to her? We wouldn't want to arrive in heaven without any scars of our own, would we? So remember, dear suffering believer, that you're part of a great cloud of witnesses who have walked through fire. Even, even if you fear that your entire life is about to be burned down, 
you can pray as they did. Our God is able to save us. He will save us. But even if he does not, we will not bow down. Let's read the final section of the story together now. Verses 24 to 30. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their, hearts let, their houses led in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the first to notice as he squints through the heat waves which distort the air around the furnace that there are four men in the furnace. And all his kingly majesty goes up in the air as he leaps up in amazement. How many did we throw in? But he already knows the answer. This is no dream. This is much worse than a dream. This was actually happening. The author of the story displays amazing literary skill. I'm sure you noticed the awful repetitiveness of the lists of, of officials and instruments and so forth. So in the first section, he had patiently listed out the ordered list of the great and good of Babylonian society. But in verse 24, he deliberately gives up halfway through. He shows them, in other words, reduced to a crowd of curious onlookers. All the pomp and ceremony and structure had dissipated away. The entrance of God onto the stage is magnificently understated. The Lord strolls through the fire without any announcement or spectacle. I guess when you have invented the laws of thermodynamics, when you stroll through the universe to look at the births of supernovas, when you have created the sun, then Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace isn't really all that impressive. All of Nebuchadnezzar's exhibitions of power and authority start to look like a cheap trick. He's just a man after all. Once you see the ceremonies and the loud music for what they are, then they don't seem anywhere near as impressive or scary as they did when we first met them. The roll call of the great and good just cried around these three young Jewish men in curiosity. And the king desperately tries to salvage his own authority by issuing all sorts of blood-curdling threats. But his power really has been revealed to be a bit of a sham. The real source of authority has just strolled onto the stage. The Son of God stood beside those three men in the fiery furnace. They left it without even the slightest bit of smoke damage. But Christ also stood beside Perpetua and Felicity in the blood-stained sand of that circus floor. Because he knows well the sound of a baying crowd. He knows the excruciating pain of torture. He knows what it is like to die. And that, I think, is the real point of this ancient story. It's not really about the miraculous escape. It's about the God who walks with us into the fiery furnace. It's about the God who will restore us to our loved ones when one day we meet them again in that great reunion. As we watch Shadrach's young wife run into her husband's arms, 
we are catching a glimpse of that heavenly reunion that will come when our days of trial are over and the Lord will be standing there watching every reunion with an expression of quiet delight. So remember that one day this fiery trial will end. At the moment it may look as if your entire life is about to be burned down. But remember what that furnace achieved. Nebuchadnezzar had designed and built it to melt the gold for his idol. But it ended up being used to refine something much more precious than gold. Your faith, says the Apostle Peter, more precious than gold is being refined in a crucible of testing. And those who stand by watching you may jump out of their seats in amazement because they will discover that you are not alone. You have a divine companion who walks calmly by your side. So we've thought about how the world gets us to conform. We've learned why people become so enraged and we have encountered real authority. Now those three points do fit together and history explains how. When Christians exhibit gentle courage by refusing to bow down to the gods of a culture, it always triggers a wave of rage, always. But by enduring suffering, the Christian can undermine the authority of the idols in their society. Remember, it was the blood of the martyrs which changed the value system of the ancient world. Rome had worshipped power and wealth. It despised values such as compassion and pity. But by refusing to bow down to Rome's gods, the early church brought that empire's false gods down. Soon the pagan temples of Rome stood empty and desolate. The paint flaked off the statues. The amphitheaters were used as quarries for building supplies. Idols always fall. But that process didn't happen by magic. It's by accepting social injustice by standing with calm courage in the face of narcissistic rage that the Christian church topples idols. I finish with this. The young idols in this room may be called to display the same courage as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the music plays, when the empire bows, you may have to refuse to take the knee. By refusing to conform, by refusing to bow down, you will bring rage down upon your heads. But your courage and dignity in the face of injustice will eventually be the thing that brings down the idols which at this moment seem to stand taller than the great idol on the plains of Dura. May God bless his word to our hearts. William.